This video is the first in a series that I'm calling Introduction to Apologetics. In this series of videos, I will be presenting an entry-level exploration into the science of Christian apologetics that is meant to be accessible for anyone interested in the topic, regardless of background knowledge. I'm going to be doing my best here to keep the cookies at the bottom shelf. So if you're someone new to the subject, this series has been designed with you in mind. And if you're someone with some working knowledge of apologetics, I hope that this can function as a kind of refresher course for you. So in this episode, we're going to do two things. First, we're going to try to get a handle on the meaning of the word apologetics, and then we will turn to consider some scriptural support for it. So what is apologetics? Well, the word apologetics is derived from the Greek word apologia, which translated literally simply means defense. Apologia had a procedural meaning in classical Greece. In the context of Athenian jurisprudence, it designated a formal speech made by a person who was accused of some crime. It was standard judicial procedure in Athens to allow the accused to make a case for his innocence or an apology before the court. The classic example here is that of the philosopher Socrates, who stood trial before an Athenian court where he made his famous speech or defense, his apologia which his student Plato later records in his dialogue that he titled The Apology. We see this classical sense of the word apologia in use within the New Testament. The noun form and the verb form of the word appears 17 times in the New Testament, and it's usually used to refer to a speech that is made in one's own defense. Broadly speaking, then, the term apologetics simply means the reason defense of the Christian faith. Of course, today the word has taken on a more technical sense. Apologetics today designates a formal field of study, an academic discipline, or even a science. Here I'm using the word science in the classical sense of the word as an organized body of knowledge. And uh, this science is concerned with the defense of the Christian faith. So we can define the science of apologetics as that intellectual discipline which seeks to provide rational warrant for Christianity's truth claims. Apologetics seeks to make a rational case for Christianity by utilizing various fields of academic study, including theology, philosophy, science, psychology, history, and so forth. And the basic goal of apologetics is to show that the Christian faith is a reasonable faith. There are three basic functions or aspects of the science of apologetics. The first is that of proof, or arguing for the truth of the Christian faith. Here we're developing a positive case for Christianity. We're trying to show that Christianity is true and reasonable. Then there's defense, or defending the Christian faith from the attacks of critics. Here we're answering objections and arguments that are leveled against Christianity. We're trying to show that Christianity is credible and that it's not unreasonable. And then there's refutation, or arguing for the falsity of opposing beliefs. And, and here we're refuting arguments proposed for competing views, and we're trying to show that anti-Christian views are false or unreasonable. Okay, so much for a definition of apologetics. Let's move on to apologetics and the Bible. And let's ask the question, does the Bible endorse apologetics? Well, the answer here is going to be both yes and no. If we're thinking about the formal science of apologetics, which seeks to utilize the academic fields of philosophy, science, history, so forth, to make a case for the truth of Christianity, then we have to say that Scripture does not contain anything like a formal science of apologetics as it's practiced today. 
The Bible doesn't give us anything like a systematic treatise on apologetics where terms are defined, a method is spelled out, and so on. But this should not be surprising, since it falls outside the purpose of Scripture. The Bible is not a book of philosophy, or science, or apologetics. It's rather a record of the revelation of God and his plan of salvation as it unfolds in history and culminates with the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Christ. So the fact that the Bible doesn't contain anything like a systematic apologetic in the technical sense is no more surprising than the fact that the Bible doesn't contain anything like a a systematic theology or a science of biblical hermeneutics. But this fact alone does not count against the validity of apologetics, just as it does not count against the validity of systematic theology or uh, the science of biblical hermeneutics. However, even though scripture doesn't contain anything like a formal science of apologetics, it certainly does exhibit and endorse the general task of apologetics as providing a reasoned defense of the faith. In fact, we can find multiple lines of support for the general task of apologetics within the New Testament. First, there are passages in the New Testament that provide a direct mandate for followers of Christ to engage in a defense of the faith. Of course, we have the passage in 1 Peter 3.15, which has become the locus classicus of the apologetic mandate. Here, Peter writes, quote, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense or apologia to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, end quote. Now, the context of this passage is the suffering of believers who are are being persecuted for the sake of Christ, and Peter is admonishing these believers to be ready with a reason whenever they are asked as to why they're willing to suffer for Christ as they are. Although the immediate context uh, for the original recipients of this letter is suffering and persecution, Peter's admonition here nevertheless represents a general mandate for believers at all times. Followers of Christ are always to be ready to give reasons for their faith. Similarly, in Jude verse 3, Jude admonishes his listeners to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The community of believers that Jude is writing to uh, was being assaulted by false teachers, and Jude is exhorting them to defend the faith from these attacks. Then there is the remarkable passage in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 through 5, where Paul writes this, quote, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, end quote. Paul is here telling the Corinthians that they are to engage in the spiritual war of ideas. Believers are to fight the spiritual battle by destroying anti-Christian and demonic arguments and opinions and by subjecting all thought to the Lordship of Christ. According to Paul, then, when we do apologetics, when we defend the truth of Christ, we're literally engaging in a kind of spiritual warfare. Another line of support for apologetics in the New Testament comes from the example of Jesus and the apostles. Both Jesus and the apostles appealed to miracles and to fulfilled prophecy as evidence and proof for the truth of their message. 
For example, in Luke chapter 7, we read that when John the Baptist was in prison, he sent two of his disciples to Jesus for confirmation that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. Luke writes, quote, In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. End quote. In response to John's doubting, Jesus points to the evidence of his miracles, to power over demons, to fulfilled prophecy as confirmation that he was, in fact, the Messiah. And the apostles did the very same thing. Consider, for example, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost as recorded in Acts chapter 2. In this single sermon, Peter appeals to miracles in verse 22, to fulfilled prophecy in verse 25, and then to the resurrection in verse 32. Just like Jesus, the apostles pointed to these various forms of confirmation to prove that Jesus was who he claimed to be. The resurrection of Christ in particular was especially appealed to as evidence for the truth of the Christian faith. During his early ministry, Jesus pointed forward to the resurrection as evidence for the authenticity of his claims. And then later, the apostles pointed backward to the resurrection as evidence for the truth of their faith. We also find in the New Testament that two of the Gospels, namely John and Luke, were written with an explicitly apologetic intention in mind. John structures his Gospel around seven particular miracles that were performed by Jesus and which functioned as signs of Christ's authority and divinity. Near the end of his account, John explains the purpose of his writing when he says, quote, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, end quote. Luke states his intended purpose for writing in the prologue to his gospel. He writes, quote, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. End quote. Luke tells us that he has compiled his careful historical account based on eyewitness testimony so that Theophilus might be certain about the things that he had been taught regarding Christ. I think we can also see New Testament support for apologetics in the ministry of Paul. In the book of Acts, Luke tells us that Paul's missionary work regularly involved reasoning, persuading, and proving. For example, in Thessalonica, Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. In Athens, Paul's spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. At Ephesus, Paul was reasoning and persuading them, the Jews, about the kingdom of God for three months in the synagogue before he began reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul provides a list of eyewitness testimony as evidence of the resurrection of Christ. 
And twice in the letter to the Philippians, Paul characterizes his own ministry as a defense, an apologia of the gospel. Finally, the New Testament also lays down the theological groundwork for the apologetic enterprise. In Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about the possibility of coming to a knowledge of God through reflection on the created order. He writes, quote, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse, end quote. Here Paul says that it's possible to know God through the revelation of himself in his creation or in the things that have been made, and that God's revelation of himself in nature is plain and that it's been clearly perceived. Paul also says that God's revelation of himself in nature is informative. Not only can we know that God exists, but we can even know some things about him, namely his eternal power and divine nature. So according to Paul, we can come to know things about God through the use of human reason, reflecting on the natural world. Then in Romans chapter 2, Paul goes on to say that in addition to the knowledge of God that we gain from a reflection on nature, we also have direct access to God's moral law within our own human nature. Paul says that the law of God is written on our hearts, that we have a, a conscience that's been given to us, that we have thoughts that accuse or excuse our behavior. So this moral law has been written on the human heart, and it's evidence, it's made manifest through our conscience and through our thoughts. So since God's existence in nature can be known through the use of human reason, reflecting on creation, we can appeal to this knowledge as a kind of common ground from which to point people to God and from which to defend the faith. In fact, this is precisely what Paul himself does when he speaks to the Athenians on the Areopagus. Because the Athenians were Gentiles who did not believe the scripture, Paul could not appeal to the Old Testament as a source of evidential support for Christ, as he did with the Jews. Instead, Paul had to appeal to that which was common between all people, human reason reflecting on the natural world. So, Paul argues that the true God is creator of all, that is, and he's the maker and ruler of all men. He therefore cannot be like the gods who the Athenians were worshiping because they were localized to a place and they required human service. He says humans themselves are made in the image of God, and so idols made, uh, made in the image of man cannot possibly be gods. He then goes on to say that even the Athenians' own poets or philosophers agreed with him, and he quoted two Stoic philosophers in defense of what he was saying. And finally, he says that God is now calling these Athenians to repent and that he's confirmed his coming judgment by raising Jesus from the dead. Again, we have an appeal to the resurrection. So believers in the first century may not have had a developed science of apologetics like we have today, but they were certainly engaged in a reasoned defense of the faith. As Kenneth Boa and Robert Bowman observe, the apologetic spirit is clearly on display everywhere in the New Testament. Quote, the New Testament writers anticipate and answer objections throughout and seek to demonstrate the credibility of the claims and credentials of Christ, focusing especially on the resurrection of Jesus as a historical foundation upon which Christianity is built. Many New Testament writings are occupied with polemics against false teachings 
in which the apologetic concern is to defend the gospel against perversion from within the church, end quote. So in conclusion, although the New Testament doesn't contain anything like a formal apologetic treatise or system, it nevertheless does provide strong, explicit support for the general task of apologetics, which in turn implicitly supports the formal science of apologetics as it exists today.